we're going to go into the final sermon, my final sermon on the Sermon on the Mount series. We've only been going through it since September, so it hasn't been that long. Uh, but we've been going through a sermon that when, when I read it myself, it takes 13 to 15 minutes to read it. So we've been going through it for eight months, nine months. But there is so much here, and, and it's such a powerful sermon. You know, very often I, I try to come up with an introduction to uh, every sermon that I do, different stories, different kinds of things. And as I was thinking of this particular sermon, I just felt lost in one sense because of the weight and the beauty and the glory of the Sermon on the Mount. And how could I sum that up? And I was thinking about different analogies and different things, and I just couldn't come up with anything that seemed like it fit the bill. And then I think the Lord dropped in my heart, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. We could put that on the board. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all that he had and bought that field. When we look at this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, it is the introduction of the kingdom of God into this world. It gives us the ethics and the way of disciples in God's kingdom. But if you don't get what it says here, you're never going to get this sermon. Because the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, as the other gospel writers often call it, the kingdom of heaven is so precious, it is so weighty, it is so wonderful. And it says this man, when he found that treasure, he went away and he sold everything else that he had. Nothing, nothing, nothing did he hold back because the treasure he found was so wonderful that nothing could compare to it. My question to us this morning, do you feel that way about the Lord who has bought you? Do you understand that his kingdom and his glory so far outweighs and outsurpasses that anything this world could ever give you that you can get rid of everything else? If you've got Jesus, you've got it all. That's the spirit of this sermon of Jesus to us. And it is telling us how then shall we live in this kingdom. The title for uh, the, the sermon series was The Good Life. And I, I, I didn't get any questions on it, but I wondered if someone would wonder, well, why is it called The Good Life? Because we know what The Good Life is. The Good Life involves a hammock. It involves a beach. It involves a cold drink, Coca-Cola with uh, cherry in it. Uh, it involves, it involves chilling out, maxing and relaxing, and life is good. That's what we call the good life. But I call this series the good life, not because of that, but it is the right way of living for God. It is the way of living in a good way that lines up with God's kingdom priorities. It is the good life. The God-ordained ethic for kingdom living. Amen? So let's stand together uh, this morning. And we want to read through this last section on the Sermon on the Mount. We want to read it together from Matthew 7, 24 through the end of the chapter. I want you to read 
nice and loud. I'm going to start reading it, and I'm going to back off and just let you read the last part of it. And let's lead it, read it real loud uh, and get this in our hearts. So let's begin reading. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Amen. Amen. The title for today's sermon is Built by Jesus. Built by Jesus. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you are the only rock that we can build on and be secure. But Lord, you have offered yourself to us freely. And so Lord, you invite us to build everything in our lives, on you, around you. And it is indeed in you that we live and move and have our being. And so, Lord, I pray that you will raise up disciples in New Life Church, Lord God, whose foundation is not built on sand, but it's built on the very rock of Jesus Christ. Be with us in the coming moments, Lord. Give me clarity of mind and heart. And Lord, we come against every scheme of the devil who would distract our minds with a million other things and miss what God wants to say to us today. So, Lord, I pray for everyone under the sound of my voice that you would give them clarity of mind and heart and ears to hear what your spirit is saying to them even now. We thank you for these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount. This is the concluding few verses of this amazing sermon by Jesus Christ. And uh, the main idea that I want to get across today is simply this, that following Jesus is a necessary sign of salvation. That's not too deep, is it? It's not too deep, and yet it's also, on the other hand, the deepest thing you'll ever understand. To follow Jesus is a necessary sign of salvation. And so I want to break that down, and we'll work our way through these verses uh, right now. So let's look at the first part of this, starting at verse 24. But the first major point, and I just have two for you today, is this, that following Jesus means walking in his ways. Following Jesus. Jesus means walking in his ways. It it, it just makes sense, doesn't it? If if, uh, I say I'm following someone, but they're going in that direction, and I'm going in that direction, then how is it that I'm actually following that person, right? We saw, we can see the, the duck and the little ducklings and that picture of them just following after, I guess it's mama duck, uh, and following the chicks following after them. That is what following is about, but 
following Jesus means a similar thing, that we're walking in his ways. We're walking in the ways of Jesus. And my first point around that is this, that walking in his ways starts with hearing Jesus. It starts with hearing Jesus. Look at verse 24. Therefore, everyone, look at this, who hears these words of mine. I want to stop that right there. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine. He's been giving this sermon for a while. He says, the first thing that I want to impress on you is you need to hear these words of mine. Now, this is extremely different than any other teacher, any other prophet, anyone else who had taught uh, the people of God, the Israelites, the Jews, because everyone else is saying, you need to hear the words of the prophet Isaiah, or you need to hear, thus saith the Lord, the word of the Lord. But Jesus is different. He's saying, hear these words of mine. My words are what you need to hear. And we can understand that because we understand theologically that Jesus is the fullness of the image of God. We see that in Colossians. He is the exact representation of God in Hebrews. He is the word made flesh. He is the God. He is Emmanuel, God with us, according to Isaiah. So we know these things and we can hear these things. But imagine this first audience hearing this from this man who's wearing clothes and gets hungry and gets uh, sweaty on a hot day and who gets thirsty. And he's saying, hear these words of mine. Doesn't point to any other source. He's not like another prophet. The prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. But Jesus is saying something different. He says, thus saith me. Thus saith me. I have a Bible that has the, le- the, the words of Jesus in red. Does anyone ever have a Bible like that or had a Bible like that? And, and that's kind of cool. It's kind of nice. The one problem with it is every word in this Bible is a word of Jesus. Amen? Whether he's the one who actually spoke it as a human being or whether it came through Paul or Moses or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, every word in this book is a word of Jesus. So Jesus is the only one qualified to say, thus saith me. What did he say? Let's just rehearse this sermon one more time. Go back to chapter 5. And I'm going to just walk through this sermon a little bit. It's not going to be on the board, but he says at the very beginning, he gives the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Jesus talks about his people as being salt and light and what that means. And then starting in verse 17, he talks about himself as the one who fulfills the law. Jesus says, I am the greater than Moses. As great as Moses was, the greatest of the prophets that had ever been known, Jesus says, he can't touch me. I'm much greater than Moses. Verse 17 in in chapter 5 says, do not think 
that have come to abolish the law of the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Who are you, Jesus, that you can fulfill the law and the prophets? He says, I'm the one who comes to fulfill. In verse 20, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Then Jesus lays out the ethic of the kingdom of God in the rest of that chapter. And what he does is say, this is what you've heard. This is what the law has said. But then he says, but I tell you. And in every instance, what Jesus does is he does not water down the law. He does not talk about what your truth is or your truth is. He actually intensifies radically the intent of the law for us to know the heart of the living God. So he says things like, you've heard it said that you shall not murder, but he says later in there, but if you say to someone, you're, you fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that if you look at a woman lustfully, then you've already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus intensifies the law in every way. Uh, In in verse 18 and verse 19, actually, where he's talking about the ethic, a brand new ethic of personal justice. The old ethic was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. To us, that sounds harsh, but as Jesus said this, or, or as the Old Testament laid that out, the idea was you can't extract more of an injustice because justice was done to this person or that person. It's got to be fair. That was the ethic of eye for eye and tooth for tooth was to make sure that one person wasn't getting preferential treatment and another getting an unjust treatment. But Jesus says in verse 19, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. That's rough, y'all. That's rough, y'all. He he gives a brand new ethic that is bathed in the love of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Ghost, you can't do none of this stuff. And I know that's bad English for all of you who just graduated. I apologize. Amen. But we cannot do this apart from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus says, thus saith me. And as he says these words, he stands on his own as the one who's greater than Moses. Listen, Moses, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, was called to the mountain. And he went up that mountain. And he said, I have to see this sight, this bush that burns, but It's not consumed. But you remember when Moses came down from the mountain, he looked differently, right? And he had a glow on him. And when he went out up to the mountain, Mount Horeb, uh, and Mount Sinai for the Ten Commandments, Jesus came down, uh, or Moses came down, and he looked differently. Moses' authority was due to the fact that he had met with God. So when... He comes down from the mountain, he looks like a different man. As a matter of fact, I would say that Pastor Tim looks more like Moses than I do. 
Amen. Because his hair was white. Amen. Like the hair of Jesus in Revelation. It was white as wool. Amen. So I'm not there yet, brother, but I'm losing a lot of mine. I don't know what that means. But Moses was a different man because, and he had authority because he met with God. Jesus didn't have to point anywhere for his authority. Now, he did say, I, am the fa- I and the Father are one. And he, he, he claimed his sonship, but his authority was simply based not on who he met with, not on a word that he read, not on what Isaiah or Ezekiel said. His authority was due to who he was, who he is intrinsically. He is God in the flesh. He is eternal God. As a preacher and a pastor of the word of God, any authority that I bring into the pulpit and in teaching is derived authority. It's derived from the Word of God, from rightly dividing and then applying God's Word to, to us as a congregation of people. Let, let me put it this way. My government name is Lawrence. It's not Larry. Everybody calls me Larry, but my government name is Lawrence, L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E. That's my name. That's on my birth certificate. That's on my driver's license. It's on my marriage certificate. When I do different things, i got to tell them Lawrence. But most people call me Larry, right? Now, some people get real familiar, and they, they want to shorten Larry. So it's just Lar. Hey, Lar. What's going on? <laughs> But listen, if I ever get behind this pulpit, or if I'm ever in counseling with someone, or if I'm ever teaching in any capacity, and I say, thus saith the lair, you ought to run out of that place. And you ought to tell some other folks, Pastor Larry has lost it. Because my authority is not from myself. It's not for any of us. The authority that we have in preaching, in teaching, in counseling is derived authority. It comes from rightly dividing the word of truth, the Bible. But Jesus alone could say, but I say to you. Jesus alone. So it starts how following Jesus means walking in his ways. And it starts with hearing his words. Starts there, but it doesn't stop there. It ends not just with hearing his words, but obeying. Let's again look at verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and listen to this, and puts them into practice. Tell someone else, you got to put it into practice. Tell someone, you got to put it into practice. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then he talks about the rain coming down and the the stream rising up and the winds blowing against it and beating it. But it does not fall because the house was built on the rock. The house built on the rock is because someone has heard the word of God, but then they have put it into practice in their life. James puts it this way, don't merely be hearers of the word, do what it says. 
do what it says. And so the word of God comes to us in this sermon through Jesus Christ. And he says, you've got to hear these words of mine, but now you've got to put it into practice. And what the scripture shows us here in in these verses, the next few verses talk about the one who hears the word of God, but doesn't put it into practice, who heard the words of Jesus and says, I love those words. Those words are deep. Those words are powerful. I'm going to quote them all the time. I, I love those words, but I'm not really going to do it. It is not my intention, the intention of my heart to live this out as it's as if it is the most important thing in my life because it's really not. It's just really great sayings, cool things to say, things to think about. They're deep. But he says the one who hears the word and does not practice it is a foolish person. And this kind of goes back to the whole teaching in the book of Proverbs that that over and over again uh, juxtaposes the wise person and the foolish person. And Jesus is bringing us back to that understanding. Wisdom is not on how much you say that you know, on what you've heard, on how many verses of the Bible you can quote, but wisdom is proven by her actions. And wisdom is actually desiring to walk out the truth of God's word. Amen? That's what Jesus is telling us about. It is foolish to think that I can simply give lip service to the word, and that's all right. Jesus said that's not all right. Listen, brothers and sisters, uh, rigorous righteousness is not legalism or lawlessness. You can go to the next slide. Rigorous righteousness is not legalism or lawlessness, but the right way of discipleship. It's the right way of discipleship. It is what Jesus is calling us to. It's a higher ethic, a higher way of living, a deeper desire, not just to honor God with our lips, but with our lives. Listen, I want to show you a little chart. The next next, uh, slide shows a chart that kind of lays out what Jesus has been doing at the end of this great sermon. And over and over again, three times, he, he juxtaposes two different ways. So in verses 13 and 14, there's two gates, a narrow gate and a wide gate. It's a difficult way and a broad way. It is a, one leads to life, one leads to destruction. Then in verses 15 through 23, he lays out two different trees. There's a tr- there are true prophets and false prophets. There are good trees that have good fruit, and there are bad trees that have bad fruit. One leads to life, he says, the other leads to judgment by fire. One simply says, I'm going to do the Father's will, that's discipleship. The other says, I'm going to give lip service saying, Lord, Lord, but not do what he says. And then we come to this, uh, these closing words of the sermon today, and again, he juxtaposes two different things, two builders. Two foundations. One builder is wise. He hears the word and he does what it says. The other one simply hears the word and does not carry it out. One is a wise person. Discipleship. Lawlessness. The foolish person. So he hears and obeys in discipleship, but hears but does not obey. 
One house is built on a rock, the other on sand. One house stands during the flood, the other house falls in the flood. Listen, we, 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 we need to be careful because uh, new life, I don't think, could ever be accused and I'm understanding the history of New Life, I don't think New Life has ever been accused of being a legalistic church. Am I right about that? I just don't think it's a legalistic church. It's a church that has prided itself, and it's good to pride ourselves on understanding and then applying the grace of Almighty God. Amen? None of us would be here today, least of all this preacher, if it wasn't for the amazing, overwhelming grace of the living God. It is his grace by which we've been saved. But we have been saved from something. We've also been saved for something. Amen? We've been saved for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has saved us from something and he saved us for something, and Jesus lays it out here in these verses. So listen, brothers and sisters, if you're not serious about righteousness, then here's the truth, then you're not serious about God. Now, now, I don't, this is not a guilt trip for anybody. We all struggle in our bodies and in our minds with honoring God and doing the right thing. But if you can just live any old way and it doesn't bother you, that should tell you that the Holy Ghost is not activated in your life. You need to be saved. You need Jesus Christ at work in your life. If we're not serious about righteousness, we're not serious about God. Let me give you an illustration. Some of you may have been this person. I, I guarantee you I was not. But there, there's a student in many classes who is the one who is usually in the front row and is just tuned into everything that the teacher says. Right? And, and the teacher told us uh, last class that there was going to be a quiz in this class. And we've gone through the class and the class is almost over. And you know that student just looking at the teacher and raises their hand with about 10 minutes left and says, excuse me, Mrs. Johnson, you said there was going to be a quiz today. Did you forget about the quiz? I apologize to those of you who were that student. I bet there's some in here. The same one that says, oh, excuse me, Mrs. Johnson, did you forget the homework assignment? We're supposed to hand one in and you need to give us a new one as well. You know that student. Now, can you imagine that student, that same person? They're, they're in tune totally with what the teacher says. They're, they're going to say, what about the quiz? What about the homework? They're, they're all over it. But that same person, can you imagine that person, that student in that classroom, and they never do any of their work? All they do is attend class, pay attention to everything that the teacher says, bring it back to the teacher's attention and the rest of class's attention, but they have no desire to actually do it. I want to take the quiz, but I'm going to get a zero because I didn't do any of the homework. I haven't studied. No, the person that does that is studied. They work. They do the work. But Jesus is saying to us, that if we are those who hear the word and don't do what it says, we're just like that student. That student who doesn't do any work but yet pays the most attention to the teacher. Doesn't make any sense. 
I remember one of the best things that ever happened to me academically was in my freshman year of college, the first test I took in college. It was calculus, which I still have no idea what calculus means. I don't know anything about it, but the first test I took in college, I got a D. Now, I was a pretty good student in high school. I was a very good student in high school. I had never seen a D. I did not know how to pronounce D. I, I, I called my dad father because I couldn't, I couldn't pronounce D. So I just called him father all the time. That's not actually true. But I had never seen a D, and I saw this D on my report card, on, on the test, and it scared me straight, y'all. I said, oh, no. I thought college was just so much fun, but I actually have to study sometimes. I went to my classes, but I said, I better get in these books. And by the grace of God, that scared me into getting in the books. Listen, when the Holy Spirit comes and shows us what we're doing is not lining up with the Word of God, that is His way of getting our attention in such a way that we say, "Uh uh-oh, watch out, D, or F, whatever it may be. And it has the impact by God's grace of convicting us of sin so that we can turn these things around and follow God's word and his way. Christ is calling us to walk with him in his way. Second point, final point today, and this won't be too long. Following Jesus not only means uh, to, to hear him and not only means to, to do what he actually says. But following Jesus means recognizing who he is. Look at verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed. Somebody say amazed. They were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. Say had authority. And was not as their teachers of the law. They were amazed at his teaching. I've said it before, but it was unlike anything that they they had ever heard from anyone. That word amazed means this, to cause to be filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. Amazed, astound, overwhelmed. That's the definition of the word that's used there. They were overwhelmed by what Jesus was saying. This wasn't just some, oh, that's really interesting. They were overwhelmed. They were astounded. They had never heard such things. Not only were they amazed, but the scripture also says that they saw that he taught as one who had authority. He had authority. Authority. And that word authority, the Greek word is exousia. It means the right to control or command. Authority, absolute power or warrant. Jesus taught differently than it says here, than the teachers of the law. He didn't teach as the Pharisees did. He didn't teach as the scribes did. The scribes and Pharisees would always go back to earlier earlier teachers, earlier rabbis, and say, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and 
this person said this to understand the law. And they would go back and they build up a case history of why my interpretation is the correct interpretation. You can read through the Sermon on the Mount all you want. You can read through Jesus' words. He never points to someone else to say, my authority comes because this person understood it this way. His authority comes intrinsically because of who he is. The Son of God, God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinitarian God. He says, authority comes through me because I am authority. Amen? See, to, to, to truly build your life on Jesus Christ, you've got to recognize who he is. Jesus is not just another prophet. Jesus is not just a great a great teacher. Jesus is not just an ethically impeccable man. Jesus comes as God in the flesh, and he comes with his authoritative word, with all authority in his hands, and he is the one who one day will judge the living and the dead. It's Jesus, the Christ, the one who comes to love and to save and to change us as well. We... we there's a song that says, it talks about coming as you are. And Christ bids us, wherever we're at, wherever you're at today in life, if you don't know him, he doesn't say, get your act together and come to me. No, he says, come as you are. If you're not a believer, he says, come as you are. You can't get your act together. Today, if you are a believer and you're struggling Jesus is saying, come as you are. But what does he say? Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you peace. Take my yoke on you and learn of me. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. He says, come to me. We need to know who this Jesus is. I'm going to turn to one last scripture, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. I don't think I have a slide for it, but Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to start reading at verse 14. Revelation is, for many, the hardest book to understand in the Bible. I get it. I understand that. There's all these crazy visions and all these different things that John, some people say John the Revelator saw them. Amen. God revealed himself to John on the Isle of Patmos as he had been uh, put on that island to, to live and to die on that island as punishment for his following Jesus. But the key to the book of Revelation is this. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the key. We can get bent sideways over a million different things in the book of Revelation, but Revelation as a book is given to us to understand Jesus more rightly. But John has this vision in chapter 1, starting at verse 14, and this is his vision of Jesus. He said, his, The hair on his head was white like wool, white as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing water in his right hand. He held seven stars. 
not Hollywood stars, heavenly stars. His right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. This is the picture of Jesus that John sees. This is the vision. And in verse 17, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I don't know about any of you, but if I saw Jesus like that, I would be afraid. Right? His voice like the sound of rushing waters. His eyes blazing fire. A sword, a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. All of this description of Jesus is the enormity of the glory of God himself. And if we're going to get the Sermon on the Mount, it can never be for us simply a list of do's and don'ts, ways to act and ways not to act. But it has to become for us the revelation of who Jesus Christ is in all of his glory, in all of his goodness, in all of his love. This is the Jesus, the Christ, and this is the Jesus way of living. We're called to live by him. Let me finish up with this. A lot of people want to be known in our day and age, being spiritual is cool again, right? Used to not be cool some time ago, but now being spiritual is cool. Loving God, I love God. Yes, I I believe in God. That's cool. Some people even want to be called Christian. That's great. But contrary to our culture, we cannot make up our own guidelines for what that means. The Bible lays out what that means. When I say my truth, and whatever I follow with that, that's fine. Okay, now I know what you think. But your truth is not truth if it doesn't line up with the Word of God. I can say my truth all I want, but it's not truth unless it lines up with God's word. And so we are called as Christians, as those who walk with God, as disciples to live under his rule and under his reign. I'll just use this last example. Some of you are Whole Foods people, Trader Joe's people, organic food people. You just want it organic, and that's good. My wife takes me to Trader Joe's and Whole Foods, and I say, man, that chicken costs way more than the ShopRite chicken, but she says, it's worth it, baby, it's worth it. Hard for me to understand sometimes. Okay, I'll pay this much for this little tiny chicken. It didn't get any steroids, so it's not one of those big chickens. But to be called an organic product, you have to meet certain requirements. Three things that I came across. Number one, you have to be produced without excluded methods. So no genetic engineering, no ionizing radiation, no sewage or sludge. You have to be produced without certain things to be organic. Number two, you've got to be produced using only allowable substances. And number three, to be called organic, it's overseen by the USDA National Organic Program authorized certifying agent if those three requirements are not met you can't legally put organic on your product and so we have to follow that law we've got to do it that way brothers and sisters we need to do the same thing with the word of god 
If we call ourselves Christian, if we call ourselves disciples, as we call ourselves those who are spiritual or love God, God sets out the rules for what that looks like. God sets out the way, and Jesus Christ is that way. That is good news to my ears. I hope it's good news to your ears. And so the question that we have to always ask ourselves is this. Can I honestly say, that my life is being built by Jesus? Am I being built by Jesus? Am I one who hears the word and desires with a whole heart to do what Jesus said? God help us. God help us to grow in a hunger and thirst for righteousness. God help us to be a people who weep and mourn when we see our own sin. God, help us to be a people who are willing to be persecuted for righteousness and a people who will be salt and light for Jesus Christ in this world. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. And as I pray, our our band can come up. We'll get ready to, to worship, to close out our service today. But if anyone uh, wants prayer, there will be people up here to pray for you. There's something in particular that God is putting on your heart, a particular need or a particular struggle that you may have. There is, we are more than willing, happy to pray with you through that. Amen. Let's stand together as I pray us out and then our band and worship leaders will lead us in song. Father God, We are so grateful for your word. You did not have to show us the way like you did, but you did. You're God all by yourself, and so no one can tell you what to do. You didn't have to come in as a man and incarnate in the person of Jesus, but you did. You did not because anyone... uh, made that to be so, but because of who you are and because of the great love that you have for your people. So, Lord God, we pray that you will help us all to build our lives on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Lord, give us the grace to turn from sin and to turn even from other things that aren't necessarily sinful, but Move us away from you in one way or another and help us, Lord God, to pursue you with a whole heart. Lord, we thank you for these things. Be with us and strengthen us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.